The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Desnappening Edition. It's Wednesday, May 1st, 2019. On today's show, our long national daydream is over. The epic 22 picture MCU cycle has ended, sort of, maybe. I'm skeptical with Avengers colon Endgame. We discuss with MCU completist and Times Opinion columnist Jamel Bowie. And then Fosse Verdon is a limited series that's on the FX network, and it tells the story of the decades long creative and spousal partnership between Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. It stars Sam. Rockwell and Michelle Williams in the title characters. And finally, we will be joined by the screenwriter John August, who will walk us patiently through the conflict now uh, happening between the Writers Guild of America, otherwise known as the WGA, and the major Hollywood talent agencies. Uh, it sounds arcane. It is arcane, but it's also a huge, huge deal. It is, it is likely to change the shape of Hollywood for decades to come. And uh, John August is a r- remarkable screenwriter and, uh, and has been a great guest on the show. So, very much looking forward to that. Joining me today is uh, the uh, deputy managing editor of the L.A. Times, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia, welcome back. Hello, Steve. In studio here in New York with Dana this week. What a treat. I'm so jelly. FOMO. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's old home <laughs> week, except for you. Uh, uh, soon. Soon we'll all be together. And, of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic uh, for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey. In 2008, on this show, we reviewed a fun, sparkling, wit-filled superhero movie called Iron Man. Uh, At the time, I think the way we thought about it was the completion of a remarkable comeback for Robert Downey Jr. Uh, It was directed with deftness and a certain sprezzatura by Jon Favreau. And who would have thought back then, X number of years later, the series would expand. It contains so many multitudes, galaxies, epochs, and character arcs, wisecracks, loves lost and found. Uh, And here we are still Beckett-like talking into a single mic in a dark closet. But anyhow, when we last saw our superheroes, half the known life in the universe had been snuffed out and supervillain Thanos stood triumphant. Now in Avengers Endgame, all the MCUs converge for one last orgiastic battle (sighs) in an attempt to win. It just goes on and on and on in order to win the Infinity Stones and the glove that contains them and something, something, something. It's got Robert Downey Jr., ScarJo, Paul Rudd, uh, Jeremy Renner, you name it. They're all in it. Um, Why don't we listen to a clip? He used the stones again. Hey, hey, hey. We'd be going in shorthanded, you know? Look, he's still got the stones, so... So let's get him. Use them to bring everyone back. Just like that? Yeah, just like that. Even if there's a a small chance that we can undo this, I mean, we owe it to everyone who's not in this room to try. If we do this, how do we know it's gonna end any differently than it did before? Because before you didn't have me. Hey, new girl, everybody in this room is about that superhero life. And if you don't mind my asking, where the hell have you been all this time? There are a lot of other planets in the universe. And unfortunately, they didn't have you guys. I like this one. Let's go get this son of a bitch. 
<laughs> oh, I could watch it all over Disconnected again. Disconnected from the imagery and everything, it does sound extremely ridiculous. <laughs> Only disconnected from the imagery, though. I also had not noticed while watching quite how much work the score is doing. Like, whoo, that score oh, is. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, before we go any further, let me introduce our guest to Jamel Bowie. Of course, was a, is a slate, was a slate veteran before becoming a opinion columnist, columnist at the New York Times. He is a photographer, a gourmand, and a very special friend of this program. It is awesome to have you back, Jamel. Thank you for coming on to talk about the MCU. Thank you for having me. Can I po- can I pose a place to begin? Yeah, I would love it. All right. I remember, I think it was like five or six years ago, when Dana walked into this very studio or one like it, head hung low, <laughs> having just heard the announcement in like 2012 or whatever it was that Marvel was going to do like 18 more movies <laughs> that would conclude in 1919 with half of the titles. And she, Wait, in 1919? Did or, we use the time stone sorry, to skip sorry, back? 20, 2019. And uh, I've like never seen Dana look sadder. Like, I think she was ready to just give up being a movie critic. She was like, this is what my life is going to be? Can I, can I comment on that? I actually have a story to tell coming out of that, which is that I don't think the book I'm working on right now would exist if not for that exact moment of dejection. <laughs> really? <laughs> I think that announcement and also around that time, a great reported piece that Mark Harris wrote about the economy of the Marvel movies and just how it was sort of changing the film industry and turning it into this tentpole driven, you know, enterprise, et cetera. Just a general feeling of depression and burnout about where movies were at at that point. I think led to my idea of just, you know, well, what is the horizon of my writing? Am I just going to write on Marvel movies until I grow old and die? You know, and so in some ways I have the infinity of the Infinity series to thank for the fact that, you know, I'm engaged in this other I very much hope that 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 uh, sentiment makes it into the acknowledgments of your book. Like, yeah, I hope yeah we, right, I, right at the beginning. I'd like to thank Kevin Feige, Feige yeah. Stan Lee. <laughs> you dedicate it to Feige. <laughs> uh, um, well, I think we should hear from uh, our resident expert, Jamel. We know, I'm curious, Dana, how you think they landed the plane, but Jamel, how'd they do? They wrapped it all up. Are, were you satisfied? How, how do you think they, uh, how do you think they did? Without, without spoiling, but just were, was this a good conclusion to this incredible thing they've built, which even however much eye rolling we're indulging here, I think we can all appreciate that as a storytelling and capitalism machine, the Marvel comic universe is pretty, pretty much of a juggernaut to be reckoned with. Yes, it is impressive. I think on the spoiler special, which you should listen to, listeners, uh, I think we conclu- I think we said that it was whatever you think of the movies and the whole project. It is sort of impressive that they managed to do it and to end at least this phase of it in I think a way that was pretty satisfying. If you like these movies, if you like these characters and these actors, I think you'll come away from Endgame having. Um, Again, having been satisfied, it it works as a as a movie most of the time. I think, I think the big caveat is that, um, you know, a, as a conclusion to this, very satisfying, even pretty good as its own movie. I'm not even sure how one evaluates it. Yeah, as its own movie, it's more like an episode of a soap opera. I mean, it, it, I I think I've seen exactly 40% of the Marvel movies. Like, I've seen most of the big Avengers and Iron Mans and Black Panther. I somehow skipped all of the Captain Marvel ones, which I... Or not Captain Marvel, sorry. Uh, Captain, Captain America. America Captain's America. 
I skipped the Captain's America, which I gather, <laughs> I, if I am to go back, probably Winter Soldier and Civil War are two that I should actually see. I think all three of them are, are among the best ones. Yeah, I, I, so it was not by, it was just by happenstance that I missed those, and I gather those are ones maybe not to have missed. Um, and, you know, there were just like entire passages of this movie where like some lady would like stand up and glow with red eyes and then like <laughs> emanate beams at someone and everyone would be like damn and be like go lady like, I don't know who you are and no one would bother to explain I mean it was fine um, but I, I actually kind of admired how much confidence they had in your own immersion in their world and that they were not they were not trying to engage newcomers at this point um, I also admired I think because of the same happenstance I've not seen any of the Russo brothers ones the directors of this film and they have such an unusual history, you know, having been comedic television directors before they found themselves in this megaverse. And I was impressed by uh, the way they approached the storytelling. Like, even though this was a three-hour movie and there is a, I'm not spoiling, a gigundo battle sequence at the end that gets super CGI-y and, like, oh, the whole world's at stake in a way that uh, I found somewhat tiresome. A lot of the storytelling in the prior two hours feels very intimate. They have this habit of kind of framing things very tightly. There's a scene where we um, encounter Thanos, the baddie who snapped away half the universe in the previous installment, and he's cooking. And just just the thought of, like, these mega people, <laughs> creatures putting like calories in their bodies to maintain themselves felt so Well, then Scarlett intimate. Johansson makes a peanut butter sandwich and shares it with some other she, Avenger. Right? I found her making of a peanut butter sandwich utterly unbelievable. I was like, ScarJo is clearly like allergic to peanut butter. Like the way she was like putting her hand on the bread and <laughs> holding the knife. I was like, she hasn't made a sandwich in years. Like she definitely has not made a sandwich. She probably years. hasn't had a piece of bread since 1995. <laughs> or something she's eating only Soylent. I, I found that to be like very bad bread acting. But I, but I found the like stew being made by um, Mr. Purple to be like very heartrending. Oh, bad guys do. Yeah. I, I think that, I think there's something to say about the film in that so many of the things that I still, I saw it last week um, and so many of the things that still stick in my mind aren't the battles or the surprising moments or the reversals, but just all of these kind of quiet character moments between everyone, as if the Rooster brothers and the screenwriters sort of recognize that at the end of all of this, kind of what you want to see are these characters being together, grappling with what's happening and tossing jokes off of each other. Completely agree, Jamel. And it makes you realize, it made me realize that that was what appealed to me about this universe the entire time anyway. And at this point, there are a lot of character arcs to resolve, right? Whether it's like romance has gone south or the feud between Captain America and Tony Stark that's been going on for several movies. There's a lot of character action that can happen without any high stakes world ending having having to happen at all. And as I gather, Jamel, that's pretty much the case with the comic books that these are derived from as well, right? There's a strong hangout element to the Avengers world. Yes, I mean all of the the best Marvel team books, whether it's the Avengers or the Defenders or the X Men or whomever. Um, what really makes them work is that they're kind of they're they're soap operas and they're soap operas with a heavy emphasis on just how are these people navigating per interpersonal relationships, given the fact that they they're all sort of demigods. Um, what you know, what what is life like? in those circumstances. So I was just actually reading something 
from like the mid 80s that involves the vision get it going missing or whatever in the first like you know 10 pages of this 20 page comic book um or the first this first issue in this series it's just the avengers kind of hanging out at avengers headquarters i think hawkeye is like you know playing basketball or something yeah, the movie I think captures that energy. And if you don't if you don't care about that at all and none of these characters matter to you, then I guess it would be 3 hours of of pointless hanging out. But I think what surprised me as someone who, as you say Julia, about halfway through this 11-year cycle of movies, I was trudging around with my head down like how can I review another of these movies? They're all the same. But I think almost exactly the moment I started to draw that conclusion was when the movie started to diversify more. I mean, not necessarily to diversify in terms of race and gender, which is only just happening now, but just different kinds of movies, right? There were the comical Guardians of the Galaxy series and there was a sort of a more political bent to the to the Captain America series. There just started to be more going on than simply hang out, hang out, hang out, blow everything up. I mean, I this is I have to say I'm the kind of person to whom none of this means really anything. Um, but I will say I showed up a little bit on the late side for my screening, which means that I mean, you know, I missed the 20 minutes of um, uh, previews. Sat down, watched the tail end of the very last preview, and then what I thought was another very creatively presented. Uh, preview started up which is the actually the opening sequence of the movie with jeremy rennert and um i was totally captivated and i said whatever movie this is i really want to see it this is a beautifully done sequence where the fuck did those people go oh my god this is incredible and then i realized on come the you know uh super branded um um mcu graphics and i realized oh that's the beginning of this movie and um that to me is what for someone like me who has to approach these as standalones simply as films you know that to me is what i find missing in them i mean th- th- these are this is a magnificent achievement of american popular culture right this that you know that this intellectual property was was locked up in litigation for so long and got unleashed finally in 2008 with what i thought was a wonderful and standalone movie and performance by robert downey jr with iron man and that they kept the verve and the wit and the banter going you know joss whedon was a tremendously wise choice to do the first avengers movie i mean i think that they've honored the material and they've done something quite remarkable um nonetheless it just it's it's inert to me for the simple reason that that the connection jamel i mean you know when you look back at greek myths right the whole the the whole point of enduring interest of them is the bizarre you know, kind of metaphysically indeterminate position of these demigods between what we think of as like an all, you know, a universal, omniscient, timeless, eternal God, the monotheistic tradition of God, of of Jehovah, right? And these superhuman, lust-filled, flawed, you know, kind of id projections that are the Greek gods, the pagan gods, and their relationship to the human world. And, and in this one, it's like, there's this supremely human opening where this man sees his whole life essentially disappear around him, which we never re we never re-enter that human world, right? We sort of just go up to demigod land, and then it's just a it's a bunch of fist fights in a way. I mean, I just wish there had been more of of how weird it would be to live in a world where there were superheroes. 
I, I kind of disagree that we never enter that world of intimacy and mourning really? that you start off with in that first Jeremy Renner scene. I mean, if if you value any of these characters at all as anything more than just super guys, you know, if you have identified with any of their human yeah. elements. And I think yeah. if, if it's about anything, the series and I'm sure the comic books as well are about the humanizing of superheroes. Right. But there are yeah. tons there are tons of, of moments and I won't spoil any of them, but of mourning, whether it's losing someone or revisiting someone in a flashback. And, you know, I have a friend who, without revealing any details about his story, but who is mourning a person very close to him in his life. Uh, who who died about as many years ago as they travel back in time in this movie and who texted me after he saw it just saying, I completely did not expect to be blindsided by this movie's portrait of mourning. And that when he realized mm. mm-hmm. that they were going to go back in time exactly five years, that he almost left the theater because he thought it would be too upsetting. But that he wound up, you know, just feel, finding it very cathartic to, to have all these moments. And I won't, again, get into what they are, but of seeing seeing loved ones re-encountered through time. I think that where the movie works best for me, the the ways in which it works um, very well for me is as an exploration of what one does in the face of grief. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that the movie jumps forward in time um, somewhat and sort of the, the, the fact that the Russos and the screenwriters that Marvel made the choice of having these heroes kind of just wallow in their failure and their and their inability to to stop um, Thanos uh, from wiping out half of the universe um, was a really surprising and startling choice to me. Like when I, when I when I saw it in the theater, I was genuinely shocked that this is where the film would go on, and that from there, I mean, there's obviously a resolution. I mean, they're not gonna. That's not how the the whole the whole series ends, but. Um, that this the movie ends with the hero still having to live with the consequences of that failure um, is an interesting choice uh, and something that I think you know for as much as the the Marvel films are often and rightfully criticized for being um, for for being somewhat homogenized and, and sort of mach- you know built by this machine um, that that creative choice. Uh, gives me some hope about where the franchise might be going after this. Um, maybe, maybe having completed this phase of the project, there's going to be more willingness to sort of make those sorts of interesting choices and and do things um, that will actually surprise viewers. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I admire most about this whole, you know, multi-story arc franchise. <clears throat> is that they are so sophisticated about audiences and how to please them that they know that you can't actually make the same movie 22 times. And they've realized that you have to have different registers, have different tones, find filmmakers who can work within the confines of this big map of a story, but will find ways to make something that feels fresh and new. Like the the particular tonal hijinks of the first Iron Man and Avengers and Guardians of the Galaxy all have something in common, the kind of lightness plus stakes, but they're different. They have they have different qualities to them. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, the thing that does feel a little bit silly is like, oh, it's the end, except all of these people yeah. are going to, except for the ones who very explicitly signed up to not do any more, uh, are like, they're just going to be more. <laughs> and I think we're going to be hanging out with... Um, 
with a good old Captain Marvel a bunch. And I will say she's she's taking on some like Superman problem narrative qualities of like, well, she can just do everything from everywhere. I'm not psyched to hang out with Brie Larson as Captain Marvel after this film. She's like a lot less interesting in this movie than she was in her own movie, which they all are. But oof, yeah, I think, Brie. I think part of, I think part of the problem is that she all of this stuff was filmed before Captain Marvel filming it started on that. So there's this weird way in which all these her and a couple other actors, all the Black Panther team, for example, um, are doing portraying characters that haven't in the movie that in terms of real life have not yet been fleshed out on screen and the actors haven't really gotten a feel for them yet. I did love Chris Pratt Instagramming like, wow, $1.2 billion. If everyone paid 12 bucks, that means 100 million people saw the movie. I'm just like, what? You have paid for a movie ticket as recently as Scarlett Johansson has made a sandwich. Like, that does not cost $12, dude. Uh, Not to mention all the repeat business, you know. Uh, Anyway, Jamel, thank you for coming back on the show. As always, total, total pleasure. Thank you for having me. Before we go any further, I'm sure we've got some business to deal with. Dana, what do you have? Yes, we do. In fact, today we have some exciting me-related, partly me-related business. Um, I have a brand new podcast that's going to be kicking off this Sunday on your Culture Gab Fest feed. It's called Flashback. Uh, the first episode will be free in your Culture Gab Fest feed. And after that, it's going to be a Slate Plus only podcast. So it's being made in part as bait to get people who are interested in hearing me talk movies behind the paywall of Slate Plus. Um, Flashback is called Flashback because it's a podcast about older movies. It's going to be K. Austin Collins, who's been a frequent guest on our program lately. I would I would call him a fop at this point at the Slate Culture Gab Fest, wouldn't you, Steve? Oh, my God. Yeah. No, no, no. That like clears that bar by a country mile. The idea of flashback came about essentially because Cam and I were talking, I think maybe back and forth on Twitter one day around the end of the year when we had 500 new movies to watch about old movies and how much we love them and how much we miss an opportunity to talk about them in a professional context. I think he was saying that over Christmas he couldn't wait to binge on his new Joseph von Sternberg, Marlena Dietrich box set. And I was saying, oh, that sounds incredible. And, you know, are you going to write about it? And we were kind of realizing that we don't get a lot of chance to talk and write about the movies that really nourish us, you know, the movies from the past that have formed the the people, the critics that we are. So the idea was that we would trade off every two weeks and one of us, then the other of us would pick an old movie to talk about, sometimes because it had a particular relevance uh, to something that was going on in today's world or a new movie coming out, sometimes just because it was a beloved movie that we felt like was worth revisiting. So our first episode was chosen by me and the film will be Gaslight, George Cukor's version of Gaslight that came out in 1944, uh, which is, I think, relevant to today's world for obvious reasons. We're always talking about gaslighting, but not actually talking about the movie that gave rise to that word. Uh, that episode will come out this Sunday, May 5th, Sunday morning. And again, Again, after that, flashback will be bi-weekly. So I hope you listen to the first episode. And if you like it, subscribe to Slate Plus. Also, a reminder about Slate Day. It's going to be Saturday, June 8th, and various podcasts from all over the magazine will be all over the city in both the Chelsea Market Passage on the High Line, which is where the Culture Gab Fest is going to do a show in the evening, the SVA Theater in Chelsea. I know the Political Gab Fest is doing a show there. There's also going to be a live decoder ring. There's going to be a live uh, outward show, a live wave show, a live Trump cast. Essentially, you can just go on an all-day-long Slate podcast extravaganza. You can either come for the whole day by getting an all-access pass, or you can just get tickets for your favorite show. Either way, we can't wait to see you on June 8th at Slate Day. For tickets and information, you can go to slate.com slash live. 
Finally, in Slate Plus today, we will be talking about celebrity clapbacks at critics. There was a sort of pileup last week of various artists, including Ariana Grande, Lizzo, uh, the actress Olivia Munn, all pushing back on people who in some way or other had criticized their work. And we're going to be talking as critics about what it means now that we have places like social media where celebrities can pop up and critique the critics. If you want to hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, you can, of course, sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, for just $35 for your first year. And that will get you access to extended ad-free versions of this show and many other great Slate shows. So if you're interested in joining Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash culture plus for information. All right, Steve, back to the show. Fosse Verdon stars Sam Rockwell as the legendary Broadway and Hollywood choreographer Bob Fosse. Michelle Williams is Gwen Verdon, the great dancer who is also Fosse's wife. Fosse directed what is rightly considered, I think, the greatest Hollywood adaptation of a Broadway musical ever, Cabaret. Uh, Verdon was thought of as his muse, as raw material, as clay to Fosse's genius. This show is a revisionist miniseries that argues that Verdon was in her own quiet and quite strategic, quite quite cunning way, uh, his creative equal. And in fact, but perhaps his creative superior. I mean, there's a sense in which, in, in fact, she's the one um, with a lot or most of the brilliant ideas. The creative team behind it is a, is just an incredible, it's like Broadway royalty is behind this show, uh, including Lin-Manuel Miranda as a producer. Hamilton's director, Thomas Kale, is uh, directing a lot of and writing a lot of the episodes. It's show run by Stephen Levinson, who wrote the book to Dear Evan Hansen, uh, uh, hence the authenticity of, of the show. Anyway, let's, uh, let's listen to a clip. I have to admit... I didn't see your show, but I heard it was charming. I didn't see yours either. Uh, I guess that makes us even. You know, I didn't realize that you'd started as a dancer. Sure, sure. Michael Kidd told me that he met you out in Hollywood and you were on contract with MGM. That's true. Yeah, you you asked Michael Kidd about me? Well, I asked a lot of people about you. Ah, that must have been difficult. Uh, what's that? We're giving up dancing. I still dance a little, yeah. A little bit. Well, you're not going to cast yourself in this show, are you? Well, if they'd let me, I'd play your part. (laughs) (laughs) Julia, let me start with you. Um, what you, I mean, what'd you make of this? This show for me so far is entirely about Michelle Williams as Gwen Verdon. Not because Sam Rockwell is an actor I don't love. Not because Sam Rockwell as Bob Fosse isn't an interesting thing. Not because the dynamic that's being explored here between Fosse and Verdon isn't fascinating. But just it's we've seen Michelle. I mean, Michelle Williams, I'm not surprised. She's a great actress, of course. But I feel like we've seen her do a lot of quieter, more stoic work. And I'm having trouble thinking of her in this kind of sassy, bossy, quietly competent, but capable. I just am eating up Michelle Williams's performance, both as a um, strategic wife to a great talent and as a star in her own right and someone who can sing and move and dance like what fun to watch Michelle Williams be Gwen Verdon. That's my main response to the show. Mm. Uh, 
Dana, a murderer's row of Broadway talent is behind this too, I think, astonishing performances in the leads. I think that's our baseline for this discussion. Beyond that, did it did it captivate you? It, I, I mean, I'm I'm so much the, the target audience for this that it's almost unfair to ask me that. I mean, w- while seeing all the flaws in it, which I think Will Paskin in her Slate review points out very efficiently, um, those problems having to do with the show's focus on Fosse more than Burden, even as even as it makes the case that you described that she was maybe the formative artist um, in the in the twosome. Uh, in spite of all of that, it is just such a theater nerd's delight. Like there's so much actual singing and acting, and to a lesser degree, dancing. I mean, these two actors aren't dancers. They've obviously trained a lot for these roles to get sort of Fosse-like movements in their dancing, but they have to be filmed in such a way that they're not really the focus. So with that proviso put in there, I feel like getting to see that much backstage theater making is just something that's kind of inherently irresistible for me. So that going hand in hand with Michelle Williams' performance, which I have more to say about, I agree, Julie, that it's completely the centerpiece of the show, makes this really addictive for me. And I'm definitely going to finish it. It's only eight episodes long and will be done at the end of the eight episodes because it's based on this biography, this enormous, I think it was, I don't know, four inch thick biography of Mm. of Fosse Mm -hmm. that came out a few years ago. So in fact, bringing her out of the shadows more, I think, has been the work of the showrunners. I mean, the, the, the biography itself was about Fosse's entire life, of which Gwen Verdon was an important part, but certainly not his only partner, as this show clearly demonstrates he was a serial womanizer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's this remarkable moment in the Truffaut movie, The Man Who Loved Women, where the narrator, who's a Truffaut alter ego, confesses when he sees what looks like a beautiful woman on the street from behind, he's relieved to discover that she isn't because then he's relieved of his almost inexorable obligation to try to seduce her. And, um, you know, when I start watching a streaming TV show these days, there's like a moment of relief when it's really not all that good. And I, and I don't have to watch it through to the end. I mean, I have that TV brain. I am going to watch every single minute (laughs) of this show. It's suffused with intelligence. I, I feel as though every frame, every choice, every actorly choice um, is exhibiting the smarts of the people who who created and conceived of it. Um, I mean, at, at the center of it is Michelle Williams' face. She's such an interesting actress because she's 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 obviously a superlatively beautiful and sort of captivating gamine type who has nonetheless cultivated this she suffer like she suffers on screen and she tends to suffer very deeply and very quietly it obviously connects with what we know about her personal life in ways that make it doubly powerful but it's also quite clearly brilliant acting um and now she's able to be to, to do that but also to do it volubly, verbally, expressively. There's a combination of a kind of suppressed quiet stoicism. She's being cheated upon unrelentingly by this man, sort of both physically and spiritually in some ways. She's being stolen from, plagiarized by him. Um, And yet there's also a great joy in being his wife and being part of this creative partnership. And it's a sacrifice she's willing to make in order to contribute to the making of Cabaret the Musical. And it, it it's remarkable to me to watch this kind of d- deeply conflicted uh, person 
come to life through the deeply, interestingly conflicted aspects of this performer and just watching her face and hearing her voice. She's sort of doing a, a voice, which I don't, you know, associate with her, you know, acting repertoire, but she's doing it really well. I love watching her. And then he's, I mean, I think she's not upstaging him. That's not quite right. I, I, I feel as though she, she is the magnetic center of the story and yet his performance is the equal of hers. And yet he's also not doing it in such a way. He, he is honoring the material, which is about a woman being, a, a woman's life being upsta- unfairly upstaged by her spouse. And he as a performer is telling that story while not actually upstaging his co-star. I mean, he's doing a very, it's a very intense, very method, uh, very deeply thought out a portrait of a chain smoking, um, vaguely suicidal, perhaps even a little bit on some kind of a mental illness spectrum, like a narcissistic egomaniac um, who's, you know, artistic capacities are, 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 you know, who's really sort of a kind of a genius in a way. Um, and then I like, I just, I, I thought all of the script choices, you know, were, really strong and really worked to tell it non-sequentially to have flashbacks to shift the focus between the two of them to bring you back to his childhood as this as a child performer who was kind of emotion emotionally forsaken or whatever by his parents and allowed to dance in like burlesque and strip clubs when he was a little kid kind of pushed you know pushed to be a performer in, in ways that really damaged him um i thought all those choices i thought were really strong i think this is a really brilliantly produced really brilliantly executed concept and i find the story itself intrinsically fascinating so i'm in it can i push back on one thing though i think your uh assessment of the show's strengths and qualities there helped me figure out one thing that made me feel like it wasn't quite uh taking flight and carrying me away forever with no remorse there is a lot of the way that they demonstrate how messed up Fosse is involves a lot of Sam Rockwell as Fosse, like standing still in varying states of baldness based on how far back in time we are, <laughs> like staring into the middle distance while like, uh, you know, toe tapping urchins from his past, <laughs> usually him like cluster and get worked to the bone. And it reminded me a lot. Uh, I mean, there's a bu- actually a bunch about this show that echoes certain things about Mad Men. It's very, it's a very different conjuring of a similar era, but it's about a brooding, powerful man hung up on his depression era childhood while competent women around him take on uh, new roles and learn their own strengths while still suffering the fundamental humiliation of being a woman in mid-century America. Like, there's a lot. And plus nice costumes. Uh, yeah, and that, sets, gorgeous sets. And plus, like, really caring about the work and the emotional life of your relationship to your work being part of it. You know, so if you liked Mad Men, you will also like Fosse Verdon, like, is a fair, you know, Netflix algorithm that I would endorse. Having never been a huge fan of the uh, Dick Whitman scenes of Mad Men, I, I felt like the show's energy kind of dies every time Sam Rockwell stares at his like sepia toned past urchin self like and I actually felt like some of the other ways that they convey his torment and his um, suicidal ideations there's like a quite striking moment very early 
in the first episode, which I will describe because it's so early on, I don't think it can count as a spoiler, where he gets bad news about his first film, the adaptation of Sweet Charity, um, and essentially imagines jumping off the balcony of his building, and it's just done in this kind of deadpan, like, it is a very effective and visually powerful way to convey that someone has suicidal ideation. Because there's no way to tell it's a dream sequence, right? You think it's really happening. I mean, you know that it's not because you know that cabaret exists, but but yeah, you kind of can't figure out what's happening or where in time you are in the story. But come on, did, were you like, yay, the depression urchins are back? <laughs> I mm. felt like the depression urchins were a pretty small part of the three episodes I've seen so far. I mean, I guess that is kind of a visual cliche, right? It's a visual cliche to have a character looking back on their past and then have the room literally invaded by the ghosts from that past. And in that sense, yeah, it was a TV trope that I was familiar with. And there were other moments that were TV trope-like. And I think like Steve, I would say that what elevated it for me above that level was Michelle Williams, her performance in the character she creates, and also the emphasis on backstage scenes and and watching a a performance come together, which I think is something that a lot of shows about performance give lip service to, but don't actually spend time with. And this show loves the rehearsal room. You know, it loves a guy sitting at a piano banging out a tune while people are marking dance moves together. And that's just something I could watch all day. It's the best theater show since Smash. (laughs) Um, I, I will, I will actually say though, I I don't find the way that they handle those flashbacks to be classical TV tropes because what they often do is position the flashback in the same physical space that the modern people are in. It's not like a cut to a whole other scene that's supposed to happen in someone's memory as it was in Mad Men and as it more typically is. And I think there's actually something that probably draws from the theatrical background of Thomas Kale and Lin-Manuel you know, it's it's sort of like a little set. It looks like the sort of thing that would happen like on a little rotating stage at the side of a big stage and be sort of part of the present world and part of the past world. There was something that actually felt theatrical about the way they handle some of the time shiftiness of the narrative here. And I didn't mind, you know, I it's fun to hop around. It's basically, my main critique is Gwen's not there, right? Was, <laughs> right. Uh, all the flashbacks where you're like, oh, Gwen figuring out, you know, th- them meeting each other as as uh, they figure out whether she's going to play Lola in Damn Yankees, a musical I was in, I shall say, not as Lola, um, but which I know well and love. Like, so fun to watch them go through a show where you really know the, the tunes. Uh, yeah, all of those hoppings around in time where you're meeting various phases of Gwen seem great. It's just the Gwenlessness that is a She gets a few of her own urchin-esque flashbacks okay. as well. One last thing for the group, Paul Reiser should be in everything, yes or no. No, I do not <laughs> oh my like. God, no. <laughs> what? That's like one other weak note is Paul Reiser as no, the like m- money grabbing. It's like I cannot buy Paul Reiser as the heavy. Like, <laughs> I mean, I but guess that's what the... I love about the performance is he doesn't buy himself as the heavy. He I knows guess he's going to end up okay. the doormat. All right, you're right. Dana, and plus, break as the, the tie, break as the tie. The... I mean, I have nothing but warm Reiser feelings. I haven't yet seen his character develop in this <sighs> beyond love, just I sort love. of the money grubbing producer. But sure, who else? Who better to play the money grubbing mid century producer than Paul I Reiser? I think I'm just mad because they're bringing back Mad About You. Like they're going to do a remake with him, like the Will and Grace style, where the actors come back, and it's like nobody needs that. <laughs> nobody needs that. That was a fine show, but nobody needs that. Everybody right. needs it is what you, by nobody you mean everybody. But, oh, you know uh, we're going right. to be talking about it. Uh, absolutely. So this is uh, called Fosse Verdon. 
It is on FX. Um, Check it out. Let us know what you thought of it. Okay, moving on. All right, well, we're joined by John August, of course, the screenwriter, uh, also the host of the wonderful Script Notes podcast, along with Craig Mazin. Uh, John's written just so many goddamn great movies. I mean, Go was the first time that I became aware of his name, maybe the first movie you wrote, John, or first of your produced movies. This is the first movie that I produced, yeah. Ah, such a, it holds up, I saw it within the last two or three years, it holds up beautifully, it's a beautifully crafted movie, he went on to write Charlie's Angels, uh, Big Fish, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, bunch of movies. Um, John, welcome, welcome back to the show, it's great to have you back on. It's great to be back on. Uh, last time I saw you guys was here in Los Angeles, we did a sort of a crossover episode, and uh, Natasha Leone was there and she was telling us about Black Mirror, I remember, so all the wonderful things uh, were, came out of that evening. Yeah. yeah, they really did. I I remember that so vividly. I remember being kind of dragged on stage by Natasha Leone so beautifully within an inch <laughs> of my life and kind of loving every second of it. Um, I knew I'd arrived. Um, well, also, the other thing that happened was that we had a conversation with you and Craig about criticism and critics, which we're mm-hmm. talking about today in our plus segment in response to the uh, Ringer article about uh, people's clapbacks to critics. But I really can't wait for all the reviews of Craig's new show, Chernobyl, to come out because it seems like it's going to be widely loved. And then Craig is going to have to reckon with critics loving his work. I hope you'll grill him about that on a future script notes. I intend mm-hmm. to. I'm Good. so happy and proud of Craig. So, <laughs> um, All right, let's enter the thicket here. The WGA is the writer's Writers Guild of America. It's uh, famous for representing, and as as I understand it, representing quite well Hollywood screenwriters, uh, among others. Um, at the same time, they're also represented by the major agent. I mean, you know, if you're a Hollywood screenwriter, you almost certainly have an agent, and if you are fairly prominent Hollywood screenwriter, you almost certainly have an agent at one of three or four, possibly five agencies. Uh, the WGA is now, as I understand it, John, and you are just going to have to correct me on this. Is now a uh, at war in a way maybe that's putting it too strongly with the agencies because they have detected what they believe to be a serious conflict of interest uh when it comes to um especially packaging that in putting together creative packages um hollywood agents cease really representing their clients the writers um and begin representing a project on which they are able to take um considerable fees uh, and the interests of the writers are being sacrificed to the package. Is that the sort of the essence of the conflict, or have I massively oversimplified or misrepresented it? No, I think that really is the essence of the conflict. Um, it's you know I don't think it's a war, but it's certainly a renegotiation of what our roles are. So maybe to do some table setting, what you said is correct. Like every screenwriter and television writer in the United States is represented by the Writers Guild of America, and it really is a classic union. So it negotiates things like health and pension. It sets the minimums for how much we're going to be paid. And so like 2007, 2008, we went on strike about our jurisdiction over the internet. And that ended up being a very important thing for us to decide because you look at the world of streamers right now, if we hadn't settled that you know, back then, it's really unclear sort of how we would be working for the Netflixes and the Amazons of the world. But as you say, most writers also have agents and those agents are representing everything above that, those minimums. And so they're helping you get it get your job, they're helping you, you know, negotiate your salary above just what the scale minimum would be. And for that, they're classically paid 10%. And if that was still the system we were living under, there wouldn't be this this problem. But increasingly, agents have been getting paid not by us as the clients, but by the studios. And um, it's really an open question whether they're negotiating the best on our behalf, 
because they're actually being paid by somebody who is not us. And that's the, the sort of heart of the, the conflict of interest. That is the packaging fee that is at the root of this. And as I understand it, John, absolutely critical turning point in the history of Hollywood was when the state of California explicitly forbade uh, agents from also being producers in order to avoid just this conflict of interest. And that back, if I recall, happened in maybe the 20s or the 30s. That totally divided up these functions in a, uh, uh, and uh, and laid the groundwork for you know kind of everything that's happened in Hollywood creatively and on the business side since. How is it that they were able to kind of end a, do an end run around this um, you know completely stark uh, legal um, injunction? Yeah, you would think that you wouldn't want to have both your agent be your employer, and that classically has you know worn out in, in previous settlements and decisions. So the biggest one is the MCA decision, which was MCA was the largest talent agency. MCA bought Universal, and it became clear that like you cannot be both an agency and a studio. Uh, the Justice Department came in and said, "Uh, you got to separate." And so. Universal became universal, and those agents became agents, you know, in other ways. And so that was a classic sort of the federal government coming involved and you know, separating these two things apart. We don't have a federal government right now that seems to have much interest in those kind of um, conflict of interest decisions. And so that's why it's kind of fallen on the WGA to sort of step in and say, no, this is not okay. And we should also clarify that that is slightly distinct from the packaging issue. The packaging issue raises some of those questions, but also... Uh, the big four talent agencies, which are have increasingly taken investment from private equity firms and are under increasing pressure to make more money and make money through more diverse business models than they previously have, have also in several key instances launched production companies and production arms, which means that they do have these production shops apart from the the packaging piece. Is that right? That's absolutely true. So there really are two kinds of conflicts of interest here. The first is packaging fees. And packaging fees are maybe one of the original sins of of television, which is that um, it was negotiated that it's okay for agencies to uh, be getting a fee directly from the studio rather than as a 10% of the commission of the client. Um, that's sort of a, a kind of a passive producing and that they have uh, you know, an interest in the show that is independent of the interest of their client in the show. Producing where you are literally you know, putting the money in to make the project and own 100% of the project, that's a relatively new phenomenon. And that only came about because private equity saw this opportunity to say, let's, you know, invest our money here and really grow these businesses. And so, especially the big three agencies um, have started to produce stuff directly. And that's a really uncomfortable relationship between, you know, a person who's supposed to be representing your interest, but is also hiring you on a project. Um. So I think you're here both explaining this conflict to our listeners, many of whom are lay listeners who may not have been following it. And also you uh, work with the WGA on this negotiation. You're on the WGA board and on the WGA negotiating committee. Uh, Just so that we're giving the fullest picture here, you know, I think the agency argument about these complaints is – uh, we only succeed when we represent our clients. Packaging is a way that we can both get them more money and get them more jobs. Our clients have benefited from packaging. We've been doing packaging forever. Uh, this complaint about packaging uh, will limit our ability to get you work. Uh, it's a service we provide. Why are you complaining? Uh, their defense of the 
um, production company argument is, sure, sure, our parent companies own production companies, but they're totally siloed. There's a Chinese wall. It's totally separate. Uh, you don't have to worry about it. Is you know, am I missing anything there? Can I no, ask, I, I can think, I ask I Robot John it. to represent their counter, and then I'd be curious to hear what you, uh, what your rejoinder is. Yeah, I think you've you've summarized sort of what their basic arguments are. Is that like, no, no, this is good for the industry. This is good for us, and it's good for our clients. And ultimately, it comes down to really a breach of fiduciary duty, which is the responsibility of you know a representative to have the client's needs come first over the. Uh, representatives' needs. And that's really where, where it comes down to, is that even if everything sort of went perfectly and everyone was acting in their the best interests of the clients, it's unclear sort of what's really going on there. And it's opaque sort of what the relationship is between these people who are paying us money and the people who are supposed to be representing us. us weirdly, a similar thing happens in professional sports. And a lot of what we're talking about right now really could be traced back to the NBA. And the NBA Players Association had a similar situation where uh, their athletes, their the folks who are members of their union, were looking at their agencies and looking at the, and seeing that their agencies were not really working on their own behalf. And so the the case law that sort of a lot of this is based on comes from that. And part of the reason why we, you know, are taking this action is so we can file a lawsuit that really lays out how this is a breach of fiduciary duty. So why does this matter to someone who loves peak TV and is excited about all the great TV shows they get to watch? I mean, it matters to, to you because it's your livelihood, you know, as someone who's now in charge of covering entertainment in Los Angeles, it matters because it's a like great, exciting drama on the scene of Hollywood, not to be cavalier about your livelihood, but, you know, the normal types of fights that the guilds are involved with, the standard contract negotiations happen every so often, they're big, they're momentous, but this is uh, this is sort of even more David and goliath than that because the Guild is taking this unusual step of looking at this 40-year-old agreement by which agents are allowed to represent the people represented fundamentally by the Guild. You know, like it's it's radical and it's unusual and it's unprecedented and people are confused about what's going to happen. So it's a great story. But if you're neither you nor me, John, and you just like like watching TV and are like interested to check out Fosse Verdon after our conversation about it, why should why should people care? What's at stake? Um, I don't know that there is that much at stake for the average lay television viewer or movie watcher. I think uh, television is still going to get made. Shows are still going to get staffed. Movies will get made. Um, the behind-the-scenes process is is really in sort of tumult right now as we're figuring out best ways to do this without the agencies being involved. But it's not like a strike where you know suddenly movies are not getting made, where you know a season of television is delayed. It's going to work normally from the outside. It's the inside process that's really changing. And I think what is potentially interesting to follow about this story is how different it is than traditional labor negotiation. So those questions of, you know, what is capital versus what is labor, who is management, who is the employee, is really kind of upended by this. Because in theory, agents are working for us. And so it's, it's honestly, it's like taking an action, you know, in relation to your own employees, which is an unusual step for um, a union. I saw you on Twitter, John, talking about how you were going to fire your agent and that the WGA was was encouraging all writers to fire their agents. I don't know quite what fire means in that scenario, because presumably it might be provisional and you would take them back if things changed. But I'm curious how that is upending things just in a in a, in a personal way in the Hollywood business world. Is, is everybody severing relationships with even agents that they've had even good working relationships with for a long time? 
So agencies are allowed to represent writers by dint of this agreement that's 40 years old. And with this agreement no longer in effect, um, we as the membership voted 95.3% to impose what's called a code of conduct. Again, this comes from professional sports that says in order to represent WGA members, uh, agencies have to abide by these rules about conflicts of interest, which is about packaging, it's about producing. And um, 95% of our members agreed to this. And once that code of conduct went into effect, none of these agencies can represent our members until they sign the code. So that's most of our members and most of the agencies. Um, what we also did is sent individual letters to our agencies, making it clear that, no, no, we really have left. And so when you saw on Twitter, me or Patton Oswald or other folks, you know, tweeting a screenshot of the letter that we sent, um, that's just to really make it clear that they are not representing us right now. And so, um, you know, down the road, once an agreement is reached, some of us may go back to those agencies, but I think quite a few of us may not. And there will be probably some shifts in how agencies work in this town once we get on the other side of this. Uh, John, just before we let you go, what's your prediction for when and maybe how you get on the other side of this? I don't have a good prediction for a timeline. What I think will probably happen is eventually we will get back in a room with somebody. So it could be the entire ATA that represents all agencies. It could be with individual agencies. But whether it's a situation where everyone comes to an agreement all at once, or there are individual agreements with individual agencies and things sort of shift that way, I'm not entirely sure. This is kind of uncharted territory, unlike a normal strike where you know at some point we're going to get to some deal that is going to be a percentage of whatever. This is a, a more you know, systemic thing that we need to talk through, and it could take a while. All right. Well, John, this is edifying. Let's have you back on sometime soon for something more fun. Thank you. It was great to chat with you guys. As always, yeah, wonderful to talk to you. Thanks a lot. All right, now's the moment in our podcast uh, where we endorse. Dana, what do you have? Stephen, I'm proud of my endorsement this week for the rather silly reason that it ties together very nicely two of the things that we're talking about this week, our Avengers Endgame discussion and also the Slate Plus discussion that's coming up about uh, the relationship between critics and the people they criticize and uh, whether or not sort of fashion criticism is on or off the table. My endorsement is two different pieces, one of them in Slate, one in the New York Times, that are about the makeovers in Avengers Endgame because we have this big time skip in the middle of the movie. And after the time skip ends, all of our heroes look really different in order to show what they've been through in these these tough five years. They have all different hairstyles and in some cases, you know, body styles and self-presentation styles that have changed. And so there are two very funny write-ups about that specific aspect of Avengers Endgame. One is by Inku Kang in Slate. It's called Endgame Hair, Ranking the Avengers New Hairstyles. And uh, and the other is by Kyle Buchanan in The Times and is a rundown not just of their hairstyles, but of their, their sort of whole new looks. Um, they're extremely silly, extremely funny, and really get at part of that charm that we were talking about, about the Avengers movies where, you know, humanizing superheroes is what it's all about. And of course, if someone is humanized, they are also... Um, they become mockable territory for their ridiculous mohawks and dip-dyed ends and other bad fashion choices. So, um, yeah, we'll put links to the two of those pieces on our show page about Avengers hair. I also read those pieces and enjoyed them. Mm, superb. Uh, Julia, what do you have? Okay, I have two endorsements this week. The first, very briefly and very sadly, John Singleton died this week. Uh, and in the LA Times, we had two pieces that made me think about his work in new ways. One, uh, a great piece from our critic, Justin Chang, uh, which has made me really want to see Baby Boy, which is apparently the um, a beloved cult 
title from Singleton's career, less widely seen than Boys in the Hood and some of his other better known works, um, but that has a really ardent following that I want to see. And also a wonderful essay from Garrett Kennedy about growing up in L.A. and what Boys in the Hood meant to him when it first came out. So we'll have links to those two essays on our show page. Also, I want to endorse a really great toy that I recently enjoyed on my vacation. Thank you guys so much for covering for me when I was away on vacation with my dear children. Uh, we were given by their grandmother two surfer dudes. The surfer dude is a toy that is like a little plastic figure on a big foam board with a, a serious kind of dagger board underneath it that you can like hurl 100 feet into a wave and it will surf towards you. <laughs> and if you have children as I do who are about six years old and good at swimming in pools but not quite comfortable in an ocean yet, this is a great toy for developing ocean comfort. It requires vigilance, like, you know, your kids are playing in the waves. They can get knocked and washing machined and tumbled. But the particular types of waves we were in were the exact right strength to, like, tumble a kid and just make them feel more confident because they could pop right back up again. Um, they weren't really too big or scary. And it's just a toy that works like a charm. And we ended up getting, they all have names. There's uh Bali Bobby and Ozzy Alice and uh, Donegan Doolin and uh, Costa Rica Rick. Like they're all from like surf breaks. They have like little characters so you can collect all five if you want to. And so we had two from their grandmother and they happened to sell them at the place we were staying too. So we bought two more and the whole family had their own surfer dudes. And we all just spent hours and hours and hours just standing at the edge of the ocean, hurling these little plastic doohickeys into the ocean and then like watching them surf. And they, they, they write themselves. They're like ocean weeble wobble. So they'll like pop back up and like really surf a little wave. I'm impressed that they aren't washed out to sea every time. They must be ingeniously designed to come back and not to just simply get have the, the what's it called, the undertow, pull them away. Well, they're not under because they're floating up high. But yeah, no, they're they're very ingeniously designed and very addictive. And we, <laughs> my husband and I did get to the place where, where when we were all each playing with one ourselves, we had four of them were... <laughs> I was like, I do have to have it becomes tempting to watch your own toy instead of your child and whether they're being swept to sea. So I was like, I'm going to keep throwing her in, but I'm mostly going to ignore her and just focus <laughs> on the one child that I'm in charge of. And you focus on the other child. And every so often he'd be like, where's Alice? And I'd be like, I don't know. And then she would always just be around there somewhere like they did. They did not get swept out to sea. They were so fun. And then they were so fun that as we were like playing with them on the beach, everyone kept stopping and being like, where did you get those? Those look amazing. Like I felt like I was in an ad for a toy. And now <laughs> I am doing it basically an ad for the toy, although I am not being compensated by this company, obviously. It's working on me. Before I go to the Jersey Shore this summer, I'm getting a surfer dude. Or I strongly recommend the surfer dude toy. You can Google surfer dude toy and you will find the toys of which I speak. All right. Well, how often do you get a book recommendation and a chance at striking a blow against fascism? My endorsement this week is inspired partially by a really regrettable event that happened a few nights ago at the Politics and Prose Bookstore. A bunch of uh, fascist goons, brown shirts, interrupted a reading. Um, they walked in uh, uh, marching in single file uh, as disruptively and loudly as possible uh, through the bookstore, there were small children in attendance. A perfectly peaceful group of people had gathered to hear an author talk about his uh, his own book. Um, 
and uh, the goons came in and they tried to disrupt it as much as possible. Thankfully, they were caught on film. Uh, many of them are gainfully employed at re- reputable companies. They ought to be let go immediately. These are explicitly white power, white supremacist, fascist goons, and they're, uh, to my mind, the absolute scum of the earth or whatever lies beneath the scum of the earth is where you find these people. The book reading that they were disrupting was by name uh, was by a guy named uh, uh, Jonathan Metzel, who's a sociologist and a psychiatrist, whose great sin was to attempt to write a book about why the politics of racial resentment is actually killing, literally killing, the very people um, who it's meant to appeal to. The book is called Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. And he's really, he's really trying to empirically demonstrate that the kinds of policies that result from a politics of implicit or explicit white supremacy result in white people as an empirical cohort um, suffering sufficiently worse life outcomes that they die in greater numbers than they would if those policies hadn't been passed, specifically looking at gun control, uh, healthcare, and um, education. And these budget-starving, you know, li- liberal gun ownership policies, liberal in the sense of allowing everyone who can fog a mirror to own a gun, um, you know, uh, sk- attempting to as massively as possible scale back uh, any form of public health care, especially, of course, Obamacare, and um, starving specifically in Kansas, for example, starving the public budget so the public schools um, have to drastically reduce uh, um uh, their own budgets in turn have resulted in a calculable calculable number of uh, of white premature deaths um and it's a it's a very sober very serious book it's not a joy to read but but it's at least getting at the heart of this gruesome contradiction so it's a fascinating argument in its own right we can link both to the book and i, I have actually read the book um it's uh, incorporated into something i'm uh, uh writing now myself but there is a very good summary of it an interview with the author on vox um but also um uh the irony of course these incorrigible goons of course they're they're idiotic you know moronic efforts in keeping with the theme of the book have completely backfired because not only have they all been clocked and identified on social media but um the book is now selling more than it would have otherwise because of the publicized incident so anyway it's dying of whiteness how the politics of racial resentment is killing america's heartland uh by jonathan metzel check it out uh thanks julia thank you Stephen. thanks dana thanks Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or you can uh, interact with us on Twitter. We'd love it. Our Twitter feed is at slate cultfest. And also, by the way, we've now got the endorsomatic, right? We've got a place where you can search um, all of our past endorsements. It's at slate.com slash endorsements. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish for... Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, and uh, Jamel Bowie, and John August. Uh, For everybody, thanks uh, so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. I don't have an army of publicists telling lies about my personal life in order to make me seem like a demigod, you know, and if I did, I, I you know, like get fucking used to it. Like people are going to get on the internet and say what they really think about you and what you're wearing and how you're talking and who you are and what you seem like.